Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of the Telegraph Rugby Podcast. I'm Ben Coles and I'm joined as always by Charlie Morgan. Hi oh, Charlie. Oh, too early there. Hi mate. You are very enthusiastic this week. That's great to see. And I'm also joined by Charles Richardson. Hello Charles. Hello. Hello everyone. Tons to get into this week, gents. We're going to be hearing from our reporter Fiona Thomas in Auckland after a riveting Rugby World Cup final on Saturday morning. Featuring arguably one of the greatest line-out steals in the game's history as New Zealand broke English hearts. Guys, what a final. It had everything. Following on from two semis as well, how often do you see at least one of those three kind of top-tier knockout games just being a real stodge fest and the, the final was brilliant? Two sides whose strengths were well publicised and actually came out in the final and for it to be decided right at the death on New Zealand just about getting on top of that super strength of England's it was fantastic. It really mm. was. It really was. And we're also going to look ahead to England's game against the All Blacks after they eased past a, a really poor Japan side, it has to be said, at Twickenham. And uh, we're also going to hear about Charles's latest croissant fueled trip to France and recap all the weekend's test action just, just on the game in Twickenham. Um, Charlie and I were there. Like I said, Japan really not very good um, sort of defensively and had moments with the ball where they looked great and then they looked terrible, didn't they? But Eng- England, positives. Positives, do we think? Yeah, I, do, I think the Argentina game, the second watch of that was actually more encouraging than first. I think it was actually the other way around this week. I thought um, we were live saying this is curiously poor from Japan. But actually, if you and if you think that they were curiously poor and yet a couple of points at 17-6 and at 38-13 they could have imparted more pressure on England. So what would that have said? But, you know, they came through, they scored scored a half century of points. I think it was a step back for Smith Farrell axis um, after kind of tentative step for, steps forward. Um, but I think these two games at the end of the autumn, we know Eddie Jones absolutely lives for these and he will have bespoke plans in place and it's just going to be riveting. But a step forward for Farrell, would we say? Yeah, yeah, I think that's he was he was, but he's been honestly watching him for Saracens this year. He's just looked really sharp. It's like almost the two years in the interim. He's he's been we've had he's had those fitness set, setbacks. He's been kind of derailed a little bit by a couple of he's been had COVID twice. I think mm. he just looked sharp. He just looked he 
he just looked really influential in everything he was doing. A couple of breakdown turnovers, um, one leading to Porter's first try, um, left-footed dink for Porter's second try. Yeah. Um, when he's doing those sorts of things, um, he, he's really exuding a, a sort of conviction that England really, really need. And I think, you know, I've written a piece inside line this morning on um, on how I think the answer is to get him back at 10 and get that balance part, centre partnership outside him. Um, and that's the way to go. As you'll know from previous weeks, we, we have a theme each episode and we've looked at selection and the art of the attack. And this week we're going to be looking at officiating with a special guest, the Test Centurion and Rugby World Cup final referee, Nigel Owens. It seems like a good time to be uh, speaking to an experienced referee, given that a certain director of rugby with a fondness for uh, video clips and sarcastic comments has been busy over the weekend. Um, yes, we're talking about Razzy Rasmus. Charles, he's one of your favourite people, isn't he? Oh, yeah, I love him. We go way back, uh, me and Razzy. Um, no, I mean, what he's doing to the game now is becoming is becoming um, very, very uh, corrosive and um, World Rugby need to do something about it, I, I think. Um, he, he, they banned him for six months. Uh, last season he, he knows exactly what he's doing he's playing a very clever game um, but we'll, only time will tell whether it's clever enough um, I think he needs to be he needs to be reprimanded again and if, you, if you're banned for six months and don't learn your lesson then um, well maybe you need to be banned for longer Charles firmly off the fence which we, we love to see Charlie do you have something on that? Just utterly tiresome I think <laughs> the, it kind of made this point I think when we did a Twitter Spaces thing uh, when he trashed Nick Berry mm. during the Lions tour I think you're prioritising utterly kind of decimating an individual referee's reputation with the aim of highlighting kind of systematic flaws. There are just better ways to do it. And it, what is his mandate to do it? I clearly don't want to put words in his mouth here, but I feel like what his mandate to do it is the devotion that he's built up from South Africa fans for winning the World Cup and then the Lions series to actually see for the first time little chinks in that um, and some South African supporters going, hang on, you know, let's just let's just focus on our selection and our errors in what are really tight games because of the nature of how South Africa play um, I think that speaks volumes definitely seems to be a vibe there I asked a few South African supporters on Twitter yesterday how they feel about it and while they they love what he's done there, there seemed to be this move towards maybe the videos are not the way to be going about it um, we'll get into that a bit later with Nigel but let's start down in New Zealand and check in with Fiona where after an unbeaten run stretching all the way back to 2017 England were defeated in a final which really had everything. Fiona, can you sum up the atmosphere at Eden Park on, on Saturday morning? Well, morning our time, evening your time. It looked incredible. Yeah, do you know what? It was absolutely brilliant. You know, never, I think, in a lot of those players' lives, did they ever think that they'd run out in front of 42,500, you know, a new record for a women's standalone test match. Eden Park was absolutely bouncing. The atmosphere was just incredible, and it's really exciting to to think that you know the RFU were targeting to fill out Twickenham in three years' time for the final when when the World Cup um, comes to us. So um, yeah, no, it was just absolutely phenomenal, and I think it will really go down as a a real watershed moment for for women's rugby, not just in New Zealand but for the game in general. The Lydia Thompson Red Card was such a, a key point in the game I, I, I don't think there's a lot of debate about the card itself but just just that sort of moment and uh, what was your take on it and, and sort of how it affected the outcome of the game Simon Middleton the England head coach said it himself after the game he, Lydia and I've interviewed Lydia several times she is the the absolute like nicest person you could ever meet 
how do you stop Portia Woodman? That is the question. And unfortunately, in the heat of the moment, she just clattered into her. And I don't know how if you guys have watched the replay, but Portia actually does the fencing response um, when she hits the floor. That's how bad the, the kind of knock was. Um, so immediately she was kind of out of the contest and she said that she can't remember any of the game. She can't remember her team winning a World Cup final, which is, Jeez. you know, just speaks to how kind of awful concussion can be, right? Um, whilst England didn't kind of go into panic mode straight away, I felt that when you're a player down, that's always at the back of your mind, isn't it? You're always going to be up, up against it. And um, unfortunately, England were. I thought one amazing moment from the final, and it's been kind of highlighted, I think Ali Donnelly uh, tweeted about it, was Stacey Flula going off and just soaking up that atmosphere. And it because the game was still in the balance, they just scored the try, I think, that ultimately decided it. But because the game was in the balance, it was almost as if it, she wasn't celebrating the victory yet. Clearly, she was just celebrating the occasion. That was, that was lovely. I wanted to ask you, Fiona, we were setting this up to be a battle between a team that really comfortable in unstructured situations in New Zealand against a team that that craves structure in England um, do we ask questions now of the England coaching staff as to why England weren't prepared albeit to play against that phenomenal team um, in unstructured rugby with 14 players yeah it's a good question there's going to be an inquest isn't there either way you know we don't know whether Simon Middleton and England head coach will kind of stay on his contract runs until the summer of next year but he just cut an absolutely dejected figure yesterday. He came and fronted up to us in the team hotel, which was kind of good of him because he didn't need to. Um, and I've never seen a man look so sad, bless him. Like he was just crestfallen. It was like, you know, it was if someone had died. It was just so flat. Um, and my heart went out to him because I know how much effort he and, you know, the other, the, the whole coaching team have put into this. Like you said, they were nailed on favourites to win. They looked like they were coping with the pressure, frankly, during the heat of that battle. How do you adjust going a player down in a World Cup final? I think it was very... I think the signs were quite quite ominous when we had that injury news directly before the game about Leanne Infante being ruled out and Lucy Packer coming in. Um, Lucy Packer, by the way, had an absolute phenomenal game, you know, given the circumstances, ninth cap. But there will be questions that will have to be asked. You know, we're not here to cheerlead this side. <laughs> They were supposed to win this thing and they haven't. So, yeah, we'll, we'll wait to see how it all kind of plays out in, over the next few months. But Six Nations will be around the corner before you, before you know it. Fiona, obviously immense dejection and sadness on the, on the English side. But I suppose just taking a step back and looking at it impartially and objectively, could that final have been any better in terms of increasing the exposure and, and the popularity around, around the women's game? Do you know what? It was an absolute thrilling watch. Like it was so end to end, so topsy turvy. It was frantic in passages of play. Like you could not, right? You know, right up until the seventy seventh minute when England had that line out, which is arguably the most crucial one that they've lost their entire World Cup campaign. Um, you couldn't call it, right? You mm. could not call who was going to win that win that World Cup final. And you know that's what we want women's rugby to be about. Um, and I think it was a brilliant advert for the game, a brilliant argument for. You know, you know, investing in female athletes, investing in women's rugby. Um, and, you know, I was, I think a lot of people wanted the Red Roses to win to sort of, you know, validate the argument for investing in, in women's in women's teams and, you know, the RFU for, for all the faults that they, they might have. You know, they have led the way in this area. 
and I think they will feel slightly aggrieved that it hasn't worked out for them on this occasion. Um, but hopefully they'll stick to their guns and and keep investing and keep um, you know keep supporting these women because that's what that's what they ultimately deserve. It's not the legacy that they want to leave, but they will be leaving you know some sort of legacy with that thirty game winning streak, albeit like I said, not the one they wanted. Huge TV audience as well. I think 1.7 million watched it on ITV, which is phenomenal. Um, Fiona, just to wrap up, in, in terms of what's next for the team, for the coaching staff, I think Simon Woodson's going to stay. Which players are we not going to see again? And, and what's next for this team in terms of um, in terms of matches ahead in the Six Nations, things like that? Yeah, so, I mean, you look at the likes of Sarah Hunter, who's 37. I I would be very surprised if she does stay on until 2020. Well, she's already said she won't stay on until 2025, but it's whether she kind of hangs up her boots now or whether she wants to target that that um, that um, Six Nations match in Newcastle next year. Obviously, Newcastle, that's her neck of the woods. It would be quite a, a nice way to bow out. But having lost a you know a consecutive World Cup final now, um, I'm not sure you know she'll she'll hang on. And it's only a three year turnaround until 2025. There aren't a lot of test matches that these women play, and each one is crucial in terms of embedding a new a new uh, team in and getting one ready for the next World Cup. So um, questions as well, perhaps over Emily Scarrett, Marley Packer, even Lydia Thompson as well. You know, they're all kind of sort of um, getting on a bit. Um, but on the plus side, lots of young talent coming through. I think there are reasons still to be optimistic and cheerful. Um, but like you said, there might be a kind of bumpy few months ahead. OK, next we're going to look back on England's win over Japan at Twickenham on, on Saturday. Charlie, we were both there. It was better than last week. And, and yet I'm also, every time I think about it, I've almost got a bit of an asterisk over it just because Japan were really, really not very good. And so while England seemed to improve in certain areas, I don't really know how much to take from it. Is that fair? That's fair. Let, let's set the scene. Really sunny day, about 16, 17 degrees. I packed my um, sunglasses after you called me out. Remember them not, this week? Yeah. Not, yeah, I remember them this time. And thought it'd be a perfect day for Japan to spread the ball, really stress England laterally as Argentina had done in the wet. And it just didn't, didn't happen. And you've got to give some credit to, you know, England are an abrasive defensive unit, aren't they? I didn't think they even, they, they came on strong in that regard, I think, in the, sec- in the, in the second half of the game. Um, I didn't think that it was England's kind of England imposing their defence on on Japan that forced those errors. I think Japan would just just look really kind of subdued throughout. Um, Jamie Joseph wanted to kind of highlight afterwards. He wanted to highlight the pressure that England had put on, but I don't think that was huge a huge factor. And England were just England were just slightly cl- clunky and slightly tentative. Still, they spoke in the week about. Um, about letting go and you know not being not being scared of making errors and making sure that you know they left everything out there they, they you know to stress they still scored 50 points but um Eddie Jones kind of um estimate he said it was conservative estimate that w- was that we left 20 points out there i think that's probably fair yeah that sounds about right and and i was, I was just so disappointed in Japan because i think i wanted to, i was so excited to see more of people like Dylan Riley at outside center who who actually did play fairly well given the circumstances but also Matsushima on the wing and Jimeno in the back row just wanted a, I was really looking forward to seeing how they went and they just didn't they just didn't. I mean the defence for that opening try I don't know what Matsushima was doing cutting no, in that much because it was a disaster he's gone massively off the boil hasn't he Matsushima I mean he didn't he, he looked a bit out of sorts when he was at Clermont in the, in, the, in the top 14 for the past few seasons and 
he, he didn't look the same Matsushima that we knew on, on on Saturday, did he? Not not at all. And I think Italy would have beat them. I mean, and that's not you know that used to be a sort of semi insult, didn't it? But I mean now I think you know if you, Japan obviously beat Ireland and Scotland in the last World Cup, and I think on Saturday I think Italy would have comfortably beaten them as they you know well they beat a great Australia team on on Saturday. Yeah, with much and change. I guess I guess we had that Japan performance in the against the All Blacks in mind as well, didn't we? And we were expecting a bit more. Um, in terms of England positives though, because we shouldn't be. Shouldn't be overly negative about a fifty-point win. Freddie Stewart, phenomenal again, just just really good in the air. But I think, well, he was good, and Ellis Genge was very good. I think we should, all, and Jack Van Portfleet showed promise. I, I think Owen Farrell was maybe the one that could have sort of caught our eye a bit. What did you make of how Farrell played, Charlie? Yeah, just just kind of what we'd come to expect from him before that kind of odd spell post World Cup with injuries and COVID. I think. Um, and anybody who's watched any of how he's gone with Saracens this season, kind of conducting, you know, as we as we keep kind of, I feel like I keep going on about Sar- how Saracens are attacking, but it is really refreshing what they're doing. And Farrell has been, along with Daly and Alex Good, has been a really big part of that. Um, he translated that quite nicely. Um, I think maybe not enough has been said about how he's taken a step back to go to twelve to try and allow Smith to flourish into that ten role. And although that makes the backline a bit unbalanced and doesn't give Smith the kind of tools that he's got I think that will will come good for Smith eventually and he will potentially look back on this period as quite beneficial um, having said that I think I would go back in the in the last two games of the autumn to a kind of more balanced midfield with Farrell at 10 and, and Smith could be a really you know in the same mould that Damian McKenzie was looking for New Zealand as that really devastating game changing number 22 I think Smith can do a similar role because um, he was he was sort of overreaching it felt that was a, in the, right at the end of the game if you watch it back um, Smith is in a second wave, gets played in by Farrell on a pullback, and Tom Curry's got a walk in, but he, but he, but Smith lobs a pass over to Stewart, and it's really jarring because you don't see him make those sorts of decisions for, for Harlequins. Um, I think he'll come good for sure, and I think it would just, it might just be a change of role coming up. It might, I mean, Eddie Jones might um, persist because he really wants this midfield to work, as he said time and again, but. Um, Again, we find ourselves talking about the England midfield and how we're coming up to a pivotal kind of selection for it. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. I mean, I said on the first episode that I'd play Owen Farrell at ten, and I'd, I think I'd move him there for, for New Zealand and um, for New Zealand and South Africa. I mean, you know, Eddie Jones talks about how how the game now has become a twenty-three man game, and he's got a well, maybe put his money where his mouth is slightly now, and, and he, there isn't a better number 22 in, in, in world rugby than, than Marcus Smith, and him coming off the bench to change the game and to ignite pace, a bit like, um, oh, sorry, to inject pace, a bit like Jack Van Portfleet did against Argentina. You know, that that's that, that would terrify opposition defences, and it might just let him settle in a little bit more. As you said, it looked like he was trying too hard, maybe and overplaying slightly, and that's maybe why he's sort of... Missed that pass at the end. Should add that we maybe it's because we did analysis on it last week, watching sort of England's attacking shape with Farrell first and then Smith leaping around the back. That when Farrell in the opening minutes actually took a pass from Van Portfleet and just cr- sort of crashed up through the middle and made good meters. Both yeah. Charlie and I were sat in the stands going, "Oh, that's different," and and that really that really caught our eye, didn't it? We were thinking, okay, maybe they, maybe they've they've got a few more tricks up their sleeve. Mm. You don't you don't see that a lot from Farrell. I think it was kind of a way of. Coaches talk about shaping the defence early on in games, don't they? And, and sometimes that can mean sort of kick passes to make sure that they're um, keeping that wi- those wings honest. And this seemed like a kind of ploy to keep um, Japan's midfield honest and going. You know, Farrell's just not not just a pa- not just going to pass all day. It turns out he sort of did after that one carry. Quite it's interesting. The, it's the directness as well, though, that we spoke about after Argentina. Against Argentina, England looked best when they're at the most direct. Yes, you have to be inventive within that and have skillful players. 
but there was there were, we were too lateral. England were too lateral against Argentina, and at times overplayed. And then against Japan, it, it seemed as if there, there was more directness. You look at Genji's try when when Sinclair's running that great out to win line off nine, and then you've got Genji following up. There was a lot more directness to it, and I thought that's when and, and as you've mentioned, the Farrell carry, and that's that's when England looked like they're at their best because they've got very good ball carriers. You know they re- they really do, and when they get the motoring, they're dangerous, and not many teams can handle them. Definitely moments of promise, but I, th- I think as Will Greenwood said in this column, I'm, I'm not getting out the bunting either because it wasn't I wasn't I wasn't totally overawed by it. The All Blacks are coming to town. That is very exciting. But before we quickly talk about the All Blacks, can we just think about selection changes that we would make for the New Zealand game? Who who do you want to sort of see? come in from outside my first thought is maybe that Guy Porter won't play at 13 and if we're benching Smith and we're benching Porter essentially if you score two tries against Japan you're not in the team the following week by the sounds of things uh, what changes would you guys make to that team I think Slade's look really hungry mm. um, bit of a kind of misfire it was a sort of summed up a bit of a misfiring afternoon before it happened he didn't he led England out and nobody sort of acknowledged that it was his 50th cap that he was getting from the bench do you remember that was kind of a bit of an odd moment to start the whole thing off um, on Saturday, but he looked really hungry. In in at fifteen with Stewart moving to the to the right wing as they did against Australia a year ago, which in that's with um, when Manny Tuilagi had the sneaky kind of false fourteen on. Um, I'd expect. Well, I'd, I'd actually I say I'd expect. I've no idea, but I think um, <laughs> I think we might see uh, Tuilagi and Slade teaming up. Um, just in midfield, Pack's really interesting as well. Clearly, he doesn't want um, Charles. You asked Eddie Jones, didn't you, in the in the live on um, team announcement day whether he'd considered teaming up Willis and Curry. That doesn't yeah. seem to be an option. No, um, he was good on that. Yeah, but we'll see. I think I think they've they've beaten that 2019 game, which they've referenced after the game against Japan. They beat they beat England. Sorry, they beat New Zealand with two lineout jumpers in Laws and Otoji starting. Um, I just I just wonder whether they they change that back row up a little bit. Um, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, he seemed pretty, you know, pretty damning about about Jack Willis in that he didn't, he he, he will not pick him in the same back row as Tom Curry, and not damning about Jack Willis as a player, just that how he fits in at the minute. With, he wants, with wants three line out jumpers. He wants wasn't three line out jumpers. He wants he wants three line out jumpers. One of whom is at, one of whom is at six, um, and and that's what he wants, and and and, and that's how he's going to pick his team. And, and unfortunately, Jack Willis seems to be the sort of collateral to that at the minute. Maybe it's because I was watching the, the 2019 semi-final last week for some analysis, but Slade came on at fullback in that, I think, against New Zealand. And there were nice little touches there where I thought, mm, I wonder if England might go back to that. Um, I think Jack Van Portfleet has to start at nine. We're, I think we're all basically agreed on that. Because we've said that, now he might not. Because yeah. that tends to be that how, tends these, to be what how these things work. So, yeah, don't don't tell anybody. Um, and what do we make of the All Blacks after their game against Scotland and how they sort of played so far this autumn? Are we? Are we? I don't know. Are Been we... off and on, off and on, off and on, haven't they? They look really imposing against Wales, far less so um, against Scotland. But they they're sort of doing that with their selection as well. They're mixing it up one week and then seemingly going full noise one week. They'll clearly be full noise um, this week coming. Um, Having said that, they were kind of. I mean, they were they were staring down the barrel, weren't they? Really, at mm. Murrayfield, and they managed to kind of pull that back. Um, what a missed opportunity for Scotland, though. I know. Yeah, they uh, they will get. Be- I'm sure they will in the future get better opportunities, um, but maybe not for a while. And they certainly haven't for a while. Um, but they just could, yeah, just couldn't hold on there. I think there are. It was interesting that New Zealand kind of went back to what served them so well against Wales which was just being that really 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 direct and TJ Paranara just sort of took that game by the scruff of his neck as he, uh, by the scruff of its neck as he has 
done so often. Oh, he's just one of my favourite players. Just such a charismatic leader, that. isn't he? So mm-hmm. and can be so influ- influential for them. His face at the final whistle was a picture. Just really so animated. No, yeah. like screaming. I remember that towards the end in the in the closing stages, whenever a decision went the All Blacks way, he was really giving it big licks. Yeah, um, he'd be not. Uh, I mean, it's the officiating episode. He'd be top three nightmares to referee. Oh yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, he would be. He would be such a good player. Um, last thing the win over New Zealand that took them, of course, was. 2012. Said that nervously. I thought it was a trick question for a second. You're okay, no, no. I've, I've just, I've just looked it up on on the laptop. Yeah, it was 2012. It's been a long time. Mm. This time, England going to do it. I think, I think it'd be damaging if they didn't. I think mm. that would that would be a sixth test defeat of the year. Um, it would mean that they could only get to a 50 percent um, win ratio, which is going to be difficult to attain anyway. Obviously, because South Africa are after that. But um, I think we, you know. Eddie Jones was talking a lot about how it's such a historic fixture and how, um, you know, how it has been such a big deal for players to get over the line against New Zealand. And that's why kind of the, the 2019 win was so important. But this is a this is a New Zealand team patently in in transition, and England have got to be ruthless with that. Yeah, I mean, Eddie seems to. The, the flip side is that. England and Eddie Jones always seem to lift their game when they're playing New Zealand. You see, you, we, we recall 2019, but also there was that game in 2018 when England came very, very close to beating New Zealand, who were at the time excellent on the back of on the back of that Lions tour, the series draw in 2017. An excellent New Zealand team, and they came within a uh, what it, it was a, an offside Courtney Laws charge down offside, uh, and where Sam Hill went and scored. Oh, yeah. um, you know, a, a whisker of beating them again at Twickenham. There's 2012 as well. I know Eddie wasn't involved then, but some of the players that are around now are, and and they're aware of what it takes. And I think I think New Zealand at the minute are the better team, and that they have more cohesion in the, in their starting 15 in their first choice 15. But that's only because they've been playing together for the whole for the whole of our summer. I think it's going to be really close. Um, England will have to go up another level to win, but I think New Zealand just to nick it a yeah. close one. Yeah, I'm back in New Zealand as well. Unsure why, but I am. Our theme today is all about officiating in the game and we'll be joined by arguably the finest official the game has ever seen in Nigel Owens. We're going to talk about the state of officiating in modern rugby and I know, Charlie, you've had a question from readers about TMOs and sort of their role in the game. Yeah, question from Twitter at Dickie Jev. Are some TMOs over-officiating the game? Now, this is clearly a big a big talking point. I think the kind of we've got to, what we've got to set out is what the aim is for these TMOs and they want to be part of the team of four. They want their involvements to be as seamless as possible but they obviously want to get keep the game flowing while getting as much correct as possible um, they can come in for foul play and obviously for any kind of scoring instances where they're asked um, they can also come in if if they're asked to check something um, by the by the referee and you'll have seen some of the kind of best refs and most experienced refs are doing that on the run which is you know pretty handy you want you want that if something if something's up for debate I thought a really good Example of best practice to kind of highlight was for the um, for the penalty try um, after Stuart Hogg's chip against New Zealand. Now, um, obviously, there was a bounce and there was a big leg break, wasn't there, in in the in the in goal area, and Anton Leonard Brown tackled tackled um, Stuart Hogg. Frank Murphy seemingly was pretty pretty intent on giving the penalty mm. try early on. Tom Foley, in um, who was TMO, just said, "Can you just just make sure, just maybe have a look at one more replay to make sure that that." leg break of a bounce isn't too far that is out of the reach of Hogg and therefore it isn't actually a probable try. I tweeted the definite try. The, the law is a probable try would have been scored without the offence. They came to the right 
um, answer because Frank Murphy said, "Yep, yeah, I think he probably would have probably would have been able to adjust to that bounce." And I think that's just a really good example. You don't want a referee who's involved in a really kind of um, well, a, a South Africa France game, a game of that intensity, to be um, overrun by um, you know, opinions coming in his ear, and, and because you, clearly some of those some of those breakdowns, there are four or five offences going on. So we want to keep that flow, but you want to get the big the big moments right but then we had the flip side in front South Africa I know we're going to chat about that in shortly but then just just to pick out that moment of of the, the break towards the end of, of Seku Makalu who was who played on the wing and and he was he was chopped by by Kurt Lorenza and um he wasn't held I, I'm, I'm quite convinced he wasn't held and, and but Wayne Barnes thought he was he gave a penalty to South Africa they kicked the three points and it looked like they were going to go on to win as um, I think it was Damien Villamsa who was lining up the kick. As he was lining up the kick, the whistles in the uh, the Stade Velodrome in Marseille were, were the loudest I've ever heard at any sports fixture ever. Um, when they showed the replay of Makalu not being held on the big screen, um, and the French players went up to Barnes to protest as as Villamsa was was lining up this kick, and Barnes was sort of um, moving his arms side to side as if to say no, 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 go away, go away, go away. Um, and the TMO didn't come in by all accounts, as, as far as I'm aware. And, and I wondered at, at, at that point if we are at the point where where it is about getting the correct decision and, and for clear and obvious things. Uh, I think Barnes had an excellent game, but this was an error. And I wonder whether the TMO should have should have come in there. Um, but at the same time, we, you don't want, as you suggested, the players coming up to you when the South African goal kicker is lining up a kick to try and protest the, the decision that he's just made 30 seconds before because it's done and it's finished. It's all, a bit, it's all a compromise it's, it and it's really all an inexact science, isn't it? No, it which, really which is. is the difficulty when you're talking about highlighting these. Um, and, the, and, the, and just to go back to Razi Erasmus, I know we've had, it, had enough airtime on him, but South Africa are a team that play right on the edge because he, he wants that. Yeah. He wants them right in the, on the gray, in the gray areas fighting at every breakdown. And that's just why I think it's slightly more, you know, that gives it more of a hypocritical edge to it it was one of the great details about the Lions documentary wasn't it you kept seeing him sort of revving them up um, it, we're going to go on to Erasmus more now with Nigel Owens but just we had some questions from readers and sort of some comments from readers as well just asking about how he's going about these decisions and I just wanted to read some of those out we have one from Gareth Hughes asking whether Erasmus is a help or a hindrance which I think is actually a really good point given that you know he will feel that he's trying to point out decisions which are incorrect, but actually the, the process just seems terribly wrong. Hindrance. You, you, <laughs> shock. Charles says hindrance. <laughs> We've also had Safas Abroad Rebbe on Twitter saying, I'm a partisan of Razi. He's done so well for us, and it's clear he is a massive presence in SA rugby. But at times, like many, he loses track of what's important. At first it was a laugh and giggle. Now the novelty is worn off. And one more from Rugbydia as well, which was, I don't agree with the way he's going about it. But he's obviously doing it because he's not getting the response he wants from the powers that be. I genuinely think he has the best interests of the game in his heart and he wants to see better rugby for players and fans. Well, having said all that, let's hear from what let's hear what Nigel Owens has got to say about this and, and also his views on officiating in the game. Nigel, lots to get into, um, but I just wanted to start with asking you what, what do you sort of what do you miss at, at the moment about kind of refereeing Test rugby? Nothing, nothing, nothing. <laughs> I'm just, uh, and you know what? P- people are surprised when I say that, and I'm actually surprised myself because it, I really was. When you sort of get to that sort of knowing, you know, that the World Cup in 2019 would, you know, probably be your last because unless you're going to be about for the next cycle in 2023, and I wasn't 
didn't want to do that. And you're thinking it's, it's going to come to an end. And I really was struggling a bit, I thought. Oh. But then, I, you know, I put things in, in place. Um, when I was eight years of age, my, my dream was to be a farmer, bought a bit of land, small holding. Uh, first cattle arrived here when I got back from the World Cup in Japan. And then my focus just switched like, like that, you know, to just loving being on the farm and just... And, and it's worked, you know, that, that transition has, has worked. Now, I'm still involved in, in rugby quite heavily. I'm part of the USC selection process, you know, and, and reviewing the games of, of the referees. Uh, I coach then a couple of referees here in Wales with my role with the WIU. So, you know, I'm, I'm still involved in it, uh, but I don't miss the refereeing. And certainly, I probably, I could quite easily go out there and referee the 80 minutes, but I just didn't like, in the end, that the travelling the referee camps, all the meetings and the talking about decisions and putting clips up. And I'm thinking to myself, well, why can't we just get out there and just, just referee the game? That's all we need to do. Um, so, no, I, I don't miss it one bit, to be honest with you. Nigel, do you think that we have a, an over-reliance on the TMO at the minute? Do you think that he's sort of, the way that the way that it's been built up by World Rugby and the way that the relationship now exists with the protocols, do you think that they, their remit is, is too broad and that they, they have too much of an influence? Do you think it needs to be sort of stripped back a little bit? Yeah, I, I argued against this when it came in years ago um, because I thought it worked well how it was just for the goal line decisions, you know, in the act of scoring a try. So if your foot touched the touchline as you were going over to try to score the try, you could check it. Uh, if you lost the ball, you know, on the goal line or over, you could check it. Um, and then they expanded it, and it was brought about by referees, really, you know, afraid of getting getting things wrong and wanting technology to check things. So, I was sort of not a big fan of it when they started extending the, the, the protocol because what happens then is you will always doubt yourself. It's a little bit like, and I, I've used this phrase before quite a few times now. Imagine you're walking across the tallest building in London from one side to the other, and you're walking across that on a tightrope. If you haven't got a safety net underneath you, you're going to make damn sure that you are concentrating and you're focusing to get to the other side. Now, put a safety net underneath. You'll just walk across that quite blasé in the attitude, ah, if I make a mistake and I fall, it doesn't matter, I'm safe. And that's what's happening now. Referees are going out in the field now and thinking, oh, don't matter if we miss something, the TMO will, will, will come in and check it. No, that takes away your, your focus then. So I, I would... I would, I would strip it back. I would strip it back and let the referees get out there and referee the game. Uh, because what the TMO should be doing is only coming in as a last resort when it was humanly impossible for the referee to see something. Um, now you're hearing referees going, was that forward? Oh, can you check that? Can you check this? TMO coming. That's why it becomes far too technical. And to be fair to referees then, people are expecting every decision to to be perfect and you, you can't have a game a game like that so for me yeah, it takes away from the game it, it adds look when you have a TMO come into, um, coming into the game for a big decision yes it brings in the excitement to the occasion but you know it's just like going to the circus you go to the circus once a year you enjoy it go to the circus every week it's not the same if you bring the TMO in um, I'm not comparing the TMO to a circus but if you bring the TMO in six or seven times a game, people then are getting fed up, except of having it once now and again, it adds to excitement. The more it's used, it takes away from the excitement. 
the game becomes a stop-start affair. The game lasts over two hours. So, yeah, for me, definitely, I, I, I think at the moment there's an over-reliance on it, and I certainly would, would strip it back quite, quite a bit. Don't worry, I feel like TMOs have been called worse over the years than, than the Seneca's. <laughs> um, Nigel, I've got to ask, Nigel, you, about got to ask you about Razi Erasmus and, and his sort of tweets about the France-South Africa game in the wake of that result. I think he's tweeted about seven or eight times so far, sort of pulling up clips and trying to sarcastically highlight where he feels South Africa have been wronged. How do you feel about what he's doing? Is it helpful in any way? Is it a hindrance? What's your thoughts on it? Yeah, well, you know, I, I saw these come up and I was thinking, is, is, you know, is this real Raz? Is, is this his genuine profile? Is he doing this? And yeah, t- to me, we, we, we don't need that in the game. And I'd have thought he'd have learned his lesson by now if it is him that is doing this. You know, there, there's a procedure in place. You know, if you're not happy with decisions or you have questions about decisions, like every coach will have, because uh, the referees can't get everything everything right, um, there is a process to go through. You know, you you send your timeline in to the referee manager, which would be Joel Jute at World Rugby, and then they would look at that with the referee, and then you would reply to the coach and say, look, yeah, you're right, yeah, we, this should have been penalised, or actually, no, the referee is, is correct, yeah, or like a lot of things in rugby, it's, well, look, you know, this is a grey one. If the ref, This is what the referee feels, interpretation of it. Um, it could well have gone the other way, and that's, that's the nature of, of the game. So, Look, once I think you start putting things out there on, on social media, um, you know, questing decisions, you know, to me, that, that, that's not what this game is about, I, I, I don't think. And um, I, I don't think it's right. Um, and, 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 I, and I don't like it, you know. And go through the proper channels. And um, as long as everybody is, is open and honest and transparent, you know, if the referee has refereed it well, so be it. If the referee hasn't refereed it well and the feedback goes back to the coaches, look, yeah, we expect a better performance, expect the decisions. As long as everything is open and honest and transparent, that is the way forward, not, I think, on, on, on social, social media. Nigel, I think that the defence of Erasmus, and he has got thousands and thousands of people <laughs> defending him, is that it's attack on, on the system um, and how the review pr- process can be better and quicker and more streamlined. I certainly think that that's what his um, thinking was in the Nick Berry case during the Lions tour. How does the system change? Just to play devil's advocate here, because how can we make that better and how does that process come about? Is that a review play- process of the system itself? Is it more experienced referees like you feeding your experience in? Yeah. Uh. Look, there is a point. I think there is, the process can be improved, I think, because when I speak to a lot of coaches, a lot of coaches sometimes tell me, look, they're not happy with the process. They're not happy with sometimes the feedback. They're not happy with the answers they're having to some, to some decisions. So there is obviously an, an, an issue here. Um, so, and this is what, you know, I, I do whistle watch uh, every week uh, uh, for, for World Rugby. And what we try to do on that is to, is to give an honest decision or give an honest explanation and I certainly won't be given an explanation if I even if, if, if they I was told look you know we need to get this message across and I say well look no that's not the right message then I wouldn't be do- doing it so what we try to do is to explain to people you know we, we saw last week there should have been a clear red card in the USA um, Kenya game so we said there look this this is non-negotiable this should be a red card so we expect referees to give this decision there were other decisions like the Colby incident in the Ireland South Africa game which resulted in a yellow card. And the referee felt it was a yellow card, and, and, and he wasn't wrong. Another referee may felt it was a red card, and he wouldn't have been wrong. It's just one of those decisions. So, 
you know, the, 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 if the process is not working, that this there needs to be then an, an honest review and discussion around how we can make a process work that everybody is is happy with, and and then you know if if we can't arrive at that, then then we have a problem. Um, so you know across social media, I don't think is is the right way to do it, and if there are issues with the process, um, then it needs to be to be sorted out. Um, by everybody concerned, uh, and the sooner the better, I would say as well, because we don't want you to become a, a refereeing trial by social media of the rights and wrong of of a decision or, or not. Um, Nigel, um, just if you were in the shoes of Wayne Barnes on on Saturday night with everything that's come out from from Razzie Rasmus, how how would you be feeling now in, in today and and yesterday? It, it, I mean, I'm, I'm sure Wayne probably hasn't seen it on social media, but he might have done, but he might pay it no attention. And I just wonder. Uh, on a sort of individual level, the, the sort of emotions that, that Wayne might be going through at the minute, um, especially on a, on a night of great triumph for him, with with beating your um, uh, your record of, of most Tests refereed, and I just wondered how sort of you, if you could put yourself in his shoes, how you might be feeling. Yeah, well, look, it's there's huge pressures on on on, ref, on referees, and Wayne is, is is a good friend of mine, a great friend, and a great referee as as, as well, and. You, you 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 will be you know you you will you you'll hear about this you will see it you know you you can't avoid it these 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 days particularly if you're on social media yourself so i but, but within you as a referee there's something within you that allows you to it doesn't make it any easier it doesn't mean that it's nice and it doesn't mean that you like it but there's something in you that allows you to deal with this otherwise you just couldn't you couldn't just do the job and you know Wayne will, will go through that game uh, he'll do his own review of it with with his performance reviewer whoever that was at the time and also as well with the referee manager as well doing and his and his coach and then there will be an honest review system and and feedback as, as well and i suppose if there's any questions that razi has, has raised they will be answered then through the proper channel i i would think or certainly would like to like to like to think so so yeah that is you know when when you do hear these things I'm, it, it does disappoint you as a referee but you just can't let it affect you you know when, when i was refereeing you know you you got the same you know people were having a go at you in the public domain uh, sometimes privately they send you an email privately or a text privately and you just have to rise above that, you know. And um, and I was always honest. I would, you know, I would I would look at my game and say, look, yeah, the coach is right there, and I would have no issues with with saying, yeah, you know, got 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 that wrong, or no, I'm sorry, you know, that decision was was correct, and you know, it, you need to change your mindset on it because this is the correct decision. Is that is that something that could be improved, Nigel? You say that you'd be happy, kind of coming out and explaining even those fifty fifty calls, and I don't think there's any doubt in that. Do you think that the the clearly rigorous review process that referees go through, can that be more transparent and would that therefore help? Well, it's, it's a very difficult balance you, you, you see this is uh, be, with, or otherwise it just becomes a review in the public domain mm. and nobody who goes to work would have your review process put out in no, the public you. domain. Yeah. You have to remember as well, and Wayne is one of the best at these, when the referee makes a decision on the field, he'll explain exactly why he's making that decision. So everybody watching that game will know, whether you agree with it or not, you know why the decision is made. There'll be an explanation there for that decision. Now, this is what we try to do on Whistle Watch, is that we try to explain these. You know, So what we'll probably be doing when I, we're recording this now on, on early Wednesday morning, 
what we'll be doing is probably discussing a lot of these questions that people are asking on social media. So mm. people are, where, where people are split between decisions or asking the questions about certain decisions, we will answer these to them. So that's what we try to do. And, and that's not sort of saying, well, yeah, the referee was wrong. It's just being honest and giving an explanation. Well, look, this is what the referee saw. This is why he gave this decision. But this is what the decision should be, or this could be the better decision, not meaning that the referee is wrong. Um, so that's what we try to do. So it's, it's a very difficult one, really, to mm. sort of come out and explain after every game a decision that a coach or people may, may, may not agree with. So I, I like to think that Whistlewatch is doing a bit, a bit of that without going into the sort of actual review process of seeing a referee's review or, you know, putting things out there of, yes, this was wrong, this was wrong, this was right, this was right. So it's, it's a very difficult balance to get, I think. And, and that's, we need to trust the process, you know. There needs to be a process in place that everybody can trust the process and be happy with it. And, um, and hopefully then we, we won't have these things going on social media about decisions. Just quickly on that, Nigel, have you got an example or a story of when you might have spoken to a coach after a game and either, I don't know, apologised or, or brought him round to your way of thinking about a decision that you made? <laughs> Every game there was a conversation with the coach after the game. Um, and, and look, you, you, there's a heat of the moment after the game, isn't there? You know, And that is not the time sometimes to have that conversation. Sometimes you do, you do have it. And there'd be a couple of times, you know, with Steve Hansen in particular would, would be knocking the door. He said, hey, what about that decision? That wasn't right. I said, yes, it was. Why was it right? And I would tell him, well, I don't think so. Well, I said, that, that, you know, it's one of these decisions that can go, that can go either way. And uh, he'd, always, <laughs> he'd always shrug his shoulders and go off. Uh, you, you would answer for everything you have. And off he'd go and shaking his head, you know. But it was done in a, in, in a respectful way. You were, you were challenged by, by, these, by these coaches. Um, and and I always I always, I love those conversations with the coaches afterwards. You know whether they'd agree with me, whether they'd be berating me on you know against the decision. I always say, well, sometimes I just say, yeah, look, sorry, I got that wrong, and that's not the right decision. And then they'd be sitting there going, oh, oh, right, okay. Um, the issue comes if you're making the same mistake again. You know, and coaches will make errors picking a team, picking a squad. They'll make error on tactics. A player will make an error in the game. The referee will make an error in the game. We, we, we're all human. And sometimes we just need a little bit of common sense, I think, and a little bit of value or respect in those conversations when they happen. Back to the farm, Nigel. Is it easier to marshal around livestock or front row forward? Oh, much, much easier. You know, when I, I, t- I tell the livestock one thing, they listen. I tell them the front row forward six times and they still don't listen. <laughs> that sounds about right. Nigel, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure, boys. All the best. OK, let's wrap up by looking at the rest of the weekend's games. Many, many tests played across Europe. And let's start, Charles, with your game down in Marseille, mm. France against South Africa. We're not going to talk about Razzie again. Let's talk about the two red cards, though, because they were uh, they were interesting. Yeah, what an occasion, too. Uh, yeah, the two red cards... Um... I mean, both stonewall decisions for me. Pretty routine for Wayne Barnes. As I, as I wrote in my report, I don't think in his previous 100 tests he'll have had much easier um, decisions or, or certainly high-profile decisions to make. Um, but I, 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 you could tell at the end the relief on the sort of official's face. I, I, I don't think they'd have had harder test matches to referee than that. The intensity, the, um, the emotion, uh, the nervousness around the stadium, it, it was off the chain, completely off the charts. That's two tight losses now for South Africa without an elite 
fly half, you could argue, or goal kicker. So what do we make of them? I mean, if you're actually losing to Ireland and France by small margins and you haven't got a quality 10, it's not terrible. The small margins is the key, isn't it? I just said earlier that those two... For South Africa to deliver that intensity... They, their games still look like World Cup semi-finals, don't they? And you yeah. can't say that of all the nations. You can't, no. certainly can't say that of England at the minute. No. Um, they they will maintain that momentum, uh, sorry, that intensity at the World Cup for sure, and mm-hmm. they will definitely be contenders at that World Cup. The the small margins is the is the key because I think South, New, sorry France with them were a couple of big moments away from thinking that they've had a super disappointing super disappointing autumn because. Underwhelming against Australia, got through Damian Pano's phenomenal solo try. Um, South Africa, they weather a storm and get through um, in, a, in what was kind of wild, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, at one point, just after Peter Stefti Toy had been had been red carded and and um, and France scored their try, it was Cyril Bay who went over. It was 13-0 to France, South Africa down to 14 men. South, the Springboks looked completely shell-shocked. I turned to some colleagues in the fresh press box and I, and I thought it could be a massacre. I thought we could be looking at a 30-40-0 job here because South Africa, their body language was of complete dejection. They looked all crestfallen. They were down to 14 men in this French bear pit with with, with France running riot, really, ball in hand. Their first try was, was out of this world good, just the most fluid backs play and then the bludgeon of the forwards it was it was it was a wonder to watch and to their credit south africa they showed enormous character and 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 were so valiant i mean they led with with four points they led by four points with with five to ten minutes to go and then they got they got pipped to the post uh, i know i know things were evened up in the second half by antoine dupont's red um but even so, they showed tremendous character, and 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 they were they were I thought they were far better than against Australia. Really, I know that intensity is their trump card. They've got this really meaty game plan, which is very direct. Um, but but it was underpinned on on Saturday actually by by a really high sort of level of skill. I thought that a lot of their players are okay. They play very directly, but after the first ten minutes, after after they were sort of. I don't know, they looked very nervy in the opening 10 minutes. After that, they really settled, and I think they, they got into their groove a little bit, and we saw actually why they're world champions, I thought. Just qu- just quickly, Charles, you, you've written a piece on hybrid players today. Yes. Why is that? What inspired you to uh, to write that? Well, that is because um, with uh, Peter Stefty Toy's red card at the, at the beginning of the, the, the game on, on Saturday night, uh, Jonathan Dante, the, the fantastic cannonball French centre had to leave because he failed his HIA and I believe broke his broke his cheekbone too um, and instead of bringing on Mathieu Jalibert um, uh, to fly half and sliding Romain Untermack to, to 12 Fabien Galtier decided to bring on the Stade Francais flanker uh, Sekou Makalu onto the wing now it's an experiment he tried in Japan um, but then here, here we were against the world champions in, in this sort of crucial autumn international in, in front of a, a sold out crowd in, in Marseille and bring, he was bringing a flanker on uh, onto the wing to face none other than Cheslin Colby. Um, it was a massive, massive gamble, humongous, and, and it was a gamble that paid off. Um, McAlew, uh, he took his uh, he didn't look too pretty when he was um, taking his high balls, I must say, but he took them nonetheless. He was phenomenally dangerous, ball in hand, and caused caused South Africa some real problems and kept Colby at bay. Which, I mean, there, there were a lot of first choice wingers in international rugby who would have struggled to do all that. Um, I want to quickly touch on Scotland against New Zealand. 
um, to pull back the curtain a little bit, everybody, we would when the game was going on, we were suddenly thinking, oh no, we're going to have to, not oh no, we were thinking we're going to have to top the running order with Scotland and New Zealand because Scotland are going to be New Zealand and this is really impressive. And then it was a bit familiar, wasn't it, Charlie? I mean, that was that was a real shame for the Scots. Yep, just fell away, having done so much really well. Um, but, I mean, credit to New Zealand. They, as we say, it felt like a similar kind of selection to their selection against Japan, and that didn't go very well either. What they're trying to do is, under a new... It's kind of interesting, them blooding... Previously, when they've blooded new players, they've come into this amazingly well-functioning machine, and at the minute, they're coming into a side, albeit... Now with six success, successive wins, they're coming coming into a side with a revamped coaching team, with a revamped approach, coming a lot more direct. So there are a lot more moving parts for these new players, and it, and it felt like that. And it felt like Scotland did did enough to overcome that and actually put them away. And just the familiar failings of that inefficiency in the, in the opposition twenty two. That Scott Barrett last gas tackle on um, Stuart Hogg was amazing. He's, amazing. A, he's a huge player for them, yeah. Scott Barrett. Um, and yeah. It will be. It's one of those that all. I mean, apparently, apparently, Gregor Townsend very much didn't sort of um, accept that. You know, oh, f- fantastic, thanks. Yeah, brave performance, and the performance was pretty good despite the result. I think he was gutted because I think he he thought that it was a huge opportunity that's, as it was. Yeah. That's great. I think. I think yeah, that's yeah, exactly definitely. What you want to hear, isn't it? If you're if you're a Scotland follower, losing Hamish Watson early to injury was was a massive blow. I thought as well. Yeah. In fact, when he went off, I thought. Uh, they could be in, in trouble here and really up against it. I mean, I know they've got good depth and certainly better depth than they might have had historically. Mm. Um, but I think that twin axis of Richie and Watson is uh, is is a really sort of canny partnership on the back row for Scotland, that especially o- with Matt Ferguson, who's who's improving excellently as well at number eight. That Ireland um, Scotland World Cup group game. Yeah, I saw a few Irish people tweeting, going, "Oh, mm. it's going to be going to be spicy." Um, let's jump to Cardiff. A much needed win, I think, for Wayne Pivak and Wales over Argentina I'd be disappointed that Argentina didn't back up how they played at Twickenham but maybe it was just too much of an ask to kind of to produce that another week on important for Pivot like we said just to ease a bit of pressure they have a bit of an odd schedule because they have Georgia next week or this week rather followed by Australia could conceivably win both of those and then have won three out of four this autumn and suddenly his record doesn't or the pressure on him doesn't seem as bad as it was does it? You would like more of their progress to kind of be built on kind of what is going right from a tactical side of view what is go- what is going right with kind of selections coming in i think you're you're going to bank on wales reaction to a to a poor performance in cardiff that's absolutely fine whether that is continuing to develop the side i'm not sure george george north going well at 13 is jack morgan really good again um so that's encouraging um yeah we'll see those two those two games finish in the autumn need to be convincing performances don't they yeah, let's touch on Ireland Fiji as well. Um, I think apparently Andy Farrell labelled it an awful performance, which I sp- but they changed so much of their side, didn't they? And I think Nick Tomney was the only standout as well. So maybe just a good, a good sort of way for Farrell to test out his depth and just see what he's got available, Charles. Yeah, I mean it's always it's always been the issue, hasn't it, with with, with Ireland? In fact, for many of the home nations, that's always been the issue, and it's it's, it's an issue you could you could lay at the floor of um at the door of Australia as well. You know, the starting fifteen is excellent, but then once you once a few of that those guys fall away that they, they struggle but I mean I think Ireland are building good depth and we'll certainly see on, on Saturday I'm going over to Dublin on Saturday uh, very much looking forward to seeing a, a full strength um, Irish side or, or maybe he might make a sort of hybrid squad to bring them on a little bit more bring that development on a little bit more or he might go hell for leather and say no starting 15 let's go and um, wallop the wallabies 
And listen, if it feels like we've gone through those games pretty quickly, it's because we have. Because we want to devote a bit of time to talking about Italy's win over oh. Australia, which was amazing to see. Just just fantastic with the old Angie Capoazzo at fullback, you know, causing chaos again and Italy getting a really famous win. That was brilliant to see, wasn't it? He's getting the world world rugby breakthrough player of the year isn't he, he, he well, let's hope so well you might get a bit of Irish opposition to that saying <coughs> give it to Dan Sheehan but uh, he's certainly been fun hasn't he Sheehan and Townsend have been integral to that amazing Ireland year absolutely but he's just so fun so well balanced so, and some the back movement for his first try drew, drew gasps mm. it was it was gorgeous yeah amazing and um yeah, just heroes littered all over the field, really, for Italy. And you've got the, uh, one of our favourites, Danilo Fischetti at Loosehead, who's just continues to continues to amaze. Have we adopted him as a, as a pod favourite player? I, I, th- I think Do I think we present him with an award or something. We've got to cap or something. I mean, bef- before this weekend, um, a little-known fact: he had the best, the, the longest average pass in the whole of the Autumn Nations series of anybody uh, of the first weekend, which is just a, a remarkable statistic for a Loosehead prop to have. Um, but yeah, I thought the centre partnership were cracking as well. Um, Brex and um, Marisi uh, in the centres were excellent. They've got a really lively back three now, Italy. And, and Tommy, Tommy Allen running the show at 10, with who is, who is second choice, really, uh, behind Paolo Garbisi. So they've got some real depth at, at fly half as well. It's not a disastrous result for Australia. I know how it, how it might look on paper, but th- they made a lot of changes, that Australian, that Australian 15. Um, and the, as I said, the, I think the Australia. I'm, I have no worries for the World Cup next year in terms of the Australian first choice, first choice fifteen. But Italy are, are a much improved beast. They showed that against Wales, and they showed it on on Saturday. And, and good for them. And it's fantastic for global rugby, really. South Africa next? Can they? Can they? No. Fingers crossed. No. But maybe. <laughs> sorry. No, well, I suppose <laughs> really, it depends what really team South Africa that, go sorry. with. I suppose, but I don't. They won't be taking them lightly now. I'm really pleased for Kieran Crowley. Is I think he's just a really good head coach. He, he's sort of got them believing this side, and he's he's always very good to speak to. We never get the chance. There are just a few rumblings in in Australia though about Dave Rennie mm. after this, and and what this means, and. His record isn't great. What, what do you think the situation is there? I was going to say, I'll go on for the tangent, a really good um, interview on City Morning Herald by Tom Decent with Ben Donaldson, the debutant mm. that missed that conversion, which is a heartbreaking way to start, yeah. start your God. test career. On Rennie, they should have been in England in the, in the series in, in July, mm. shouldn't they? Having, um, having kind of cast aside uh, England with 14 men in the first test, they had so many chances to win the second and then the third. That was a gut wrencher. Should have beaten the All Blacks, but for um, Matthew, Matthew Reynolds' um, intervention, so correct a re- intervention, a really, a really funny kind of bitter year. You sense that when they get all the all the best players on the park, that they will be a, a, a force to be reckoned with. But mm. it's just ha- it's just how results like that must just derail momentum, derail confidence. Um, yeah, I guess we'll see how they respond. Should add Rennie's contract is up after the World Cup next year, so I think that's why there's a few there's sort of you know columns starting to be devoted towards this and whether he'll he'll continue. Right, that's it for today. Thanks to Charles and Charlie as ever, and to our guests Fiona Thomas and Nigel Owens. A reminder: we'll be exploring a different theme each week, and if you haven't already, you can check out earlier episodes with Eddie Jones on the art of selection, and last week's chat with former England head coach Stuart Lancaster on attack in the modern game as well. Our theme next week is all about the set piece, so if you have any questions ahead of that one, you can get in touch with us at rugbypod at telegraph.co.uk or send us a tweet as well. In the meantime, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you can do that now on any platform, wherever you are in the world. 
three of us will be back with you next week. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>